You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras Red Sox Edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand recently sat down with Red Sox President of Baseball Operations Dave Dombrowski to discuss his career, life without David Ortiz, and the big offseason addition of Chris Sale to Boston's rotation. Here's Mark. How did you land your first job in baseball? Well, I uh, went to the winter meetings in December of 1977 in Honolulu, Hawaii. I was a senior in college, and I was writing a paper when I was an undergraduate uh, student at Western Michigan University in the Honors College, and it, and it was an undergraduate thesis. And I was, the paper was titled The General Manager, The Man in the Middle. And so when I was interviewing general managers for, the job, for this paper, I asked them where was the best place to go try to get a job. And they recommended to me to, to attend the winter meetings. So when people think of the winter meetings, they think of them now. Um, they were much different. There was no actually job seeker seminar at that point. There were some job seekers there, it being far away uh, in Honolulu. It just And that was a coincidence. People say, oh, sure, but no, that was just, I would have gone <laughs> anywhere. Say, how can we get them back there? <laughs> yeah, I would have gone anywhere. You know, that it just so happened that's where they were. So I say, had money saved up from parents and grandparents and birthdays and Christmases and I took that money that was saved up to get started in, with my uh, life and bought a plane ticket and went out there with a good friend of mine. He did go out on vacation and uh, tried to get uh, job interviews with people. And so uh, there were only about probably uh, 15 job seekers out there at that time. And it just so happened that I ran into, at that point, uh, Roland Hemond, who was the general manager of the White Sox. He was one of the people that interviewed me for, I interviewed with him for the paper that I was writing, and he's the one that recommended to me to go out there. So uh, it was sort of a coincidence. I ended up going out there, followed his guidance. I had one semester short of graduation. I ran into Roland, and uh, through a couple of interviews with various people, I ended up uh, beginning of January, starting with the Chicago White Sox. How much of an influence was Roland on you earlier in your career? Oh, well, total influence. It really is what it comes down to. I mean, it, I could never be um, repay my thanks to Roland for what he did for me with my career because not only did he advise me to go there, not only was he influential, and I had no family connections or anything. It was not like I knew him. Uh, influential in me being hired. Uh, I... All of a sudden, my second year, 1979, I'm 22 years old, the individual that was my boss uh, resigned during spring training, and I ended up getting his job as an assistant director of player development and scouting, which was an assistant to Paul Richards, the famous baseball person, um, but he lived in Waxahachie, Texas, so he wasn't in the office at that point. So I was the only person in the office in the baseball end of the operation other than Roland. Uh, we had a couple of secretaries at that time. And Roland uh, basically took me under his wing every step of the way. And so he helped guide me, teach me um, about baseball. Um, and then he was a matter that he would say, you're not going to learn about baseball just sitting in the front office. You need to go out and he'd send me out with our scouts for weeks at a time. A guy like Walt Widmeyer, who was a famous free agent scout. And I'd go out in spring training before spring training would start and spend a couple weeks with him driving around looking at amateur players. and being able to pick his brain. He sent me to Latin America with a gentleman by the name of Angel Vasquez where I would travel all over there. 
he was ahead of our Latin American operations. He would send me to ride the buses in the minor leagues so I'd have a pulse of what the players were going through and was always open for questions. Uh, so he was really my mentor, not only in baseball, but also you could not meet a better person as far as um, not only knowledgeable, but a better person at heart than Roland Heeman. And to start for him, he was so influential every step of my career. We've seen a lot of younger people get hired as GMs in recent years. When you were hired in 1988 with the Expos, you were 31, which seemed pretty young for a GM at the time, still would now. Uh, was that intimidating for you to be that young in that, side of, that type of position? Well, it really wasn't. And, and the reason why it wasn't intimidating was really probably a couple of, a couple of reasons. Um, one is because I had Roland as my mentor and teacher, and I was his assistant at that time for quite a long time period is um, when I was with the White Sox, and then I went on to Montreal and was hired there. But Roland, even at a young age, let's say I was, I don't know, 23, 24, he would bring me in trade discussions with other general managers. So even though they were much older than me, he would include me in that. And our trade discussions were smaller at that point. Um, you met with every club, though, in baseball at the winter meetings. When you went to the general manager's meetings, there were normally only one person per club, and then I was one of a second of a group of clubs that had a second person. So the inner workings was very small. So I, even though they were much older than me, they were always very nice to me. Um, so all of a sudden if I was meeting um, a Bob Housem or a Dick Wagner or a Cedric Tallis or Bob Kennedy, all individuals, Al Rosen, people that have been general managers for years, at least I knew them. Right. So it wasn't like I was just walking in off the street. I had been part of conversations with them for years. So that was the one thing. The second thing that was very helpful to me is that when I took the job with the Expos, when I was asked to be the general manager, uh, John McHale Sr. was there at the time, and he was a longtime baseball uh, official, general manager, very smart person in baseball, well-respected, well played, done everything in the game. He was there along with Jim Fanning to advise me. And in addition to that, I thought it was really important to have a veteran right-hand man that could help me deal with some of the people that had more time in the game, more veteran people. And that individual ended up being um, Whitey Lockman, was his name, Carol Whitey Lockman. And Whitey was a longtime baseball player, um, coach, manager, uh, the College of Coaches with the Chicago Cubs, and had been a longtime scout. And so if there was even a little bit of, um, let's say, tension, because I was a young guy with somebody, mm -hmm. it would quickly be broken because Whitey was there. Or in some cases, I remember, uh, let's just say Bob Kennedy, and who was nice to me, but Whitey had a different relationship with him because he knew him for years and years and years. And Al Rosen played against him in years and years and years. So uh, Whitey was very helpful to me at that point, as well as some other veteran people, like Jim Fanning and John McHale Sr. But the reality was is I never really had that intimidation factor or fear factor because I felt like I was ready to do so. I knew the people, and Roland would give me a good background, and I had good people around me. Do you ever wonder what the 1994 Expos could have accomplished? Well, I was gone, of course, by then at the point well, of 94. You obviously yeah. build that team up. Well, that club, to me, just watching from afar, because I was with the Marlins at that time, they were the best club in baseball. I, I, I'd have been surprised if they didn't win the World Series. They were that good, and they had stars everywhere. 
they were the prime of their career. They had a great manager. They could do everything, and they were playing great baseball at that time. Um, so you wonder, but I think people would have looked back at them and said that was one of the best teams in a long time period and probably would have changed baseball in Montreal. Sure. Because all of a sudden, I, I, the interest in that club would have been phenomenal, and they wouldn't have had to move those players then like they did. And so um, I have no question that would have been a really good club. You were hired as a Marlins GM in September of 1991 and didn't start playing until 1993. What are those first 18 months like running a team, trying to put together a team that hasn't played a game yet and won't for quite some time? Sure. Well, you know, it was enjoyable. There was never really a... a a downtime per se, even though it seems like like such a long time period. But when you think about it, and it was always a uh, inspiring situation for me because when you think you're the first person to be part of the baseball end of the operation, there was nobody else there. They hired me, and then you could build your organization. So when you start talking about hiring a scouting director, director of player development, your Latin American operations, your major league scouts preparing for the expansion draft, uh, your international operations, all of a sudden you start doing those. It, it's very time consuming. The manager was on the back. We weren't going to worry about hiring a manager for another year. But when you start talking about preparation of, for scouting for an expansion draft, which all of a sudden, even that winter time of 91, even though the expansion draft wasn't going to take place till November of 92, Winter ball was taking place, so you could hire some scouts and they would go out and they'd watch. And then also, too, there was a lot more PR than you would normally think of because there were no players in the organization, right. so they wanted to talk to you. So I remember I had a television show on a Sunday night that would be a regular show when I was in town. Well, you would never think of doing that now, but they just had so much interest in what was going to take place with the team. So there were so many steps to take, but being part of an expansion team was one of the most exciting things in, in my career and one of the most rewarding, especially when you, the bonds you made with the people that starting the organization, the great people that we had, the scouts that were part of it that helped us have, you know, supply the talent for the expansion draft, and then eventually growing it to win a world championship. Uh, it was really an exciting time. After that world championship, you had to sell off a lot of those players. How difficult was that for you not to have a chance to go for a repeat or see sort of what that team could accomplish? Well, you, I downplayed it at the time because I think it's important in my role when you're in charge of an organization, um, you have to keep as positive a vein as you possibly can because you can't be walking around and say, oh, woe is me, this is terrible, this is bad. Uh, you can say that maybe for a day or two, but then after that you've got to turn the page and say, okay, if I'm willing to accept this responsibility, we need to build back the organization to be successful for the long run, which, which we did. But I will say that it was tough because, just as we talked about that 94 Expo team, that 97 Marlins team was really good. And we had it set up to be good for years to come because we had players in the prime of their career. Um, we had a young players coming within the system. And I think that that would have been a club that would people would have looked back and said, wow, when you talk about good clubs in recent years, we had a great manager in Jim Leland in the prime of his career. And it was really a good situation. Players wanted to play there in South Florida at the time. You had people from, a lot of players from Florida, of course, Latin American players wanted to play there. We had the Miami, we had the Fort Lauderdale mix. So it was a painful process. Uh, Jim Leland at a different time of his career really had decided that 
after the one year that that really wasn't for him. He didn't want to build it back. But I was at a different phase of my career, about 10 years younger than Jim, and felt like, okay, I'm going to tackle this back and look to build it, build it back. But it was a painful process. You moved on to Detroit at the end of 2001. For all the success you've had, you also endured a 119 loss season in 2003. What's it like to oversee that kind of team? Well, it's painstaking. Um, part of you, um, you, nobody likes to lose in this game in, in our positions. I mean, you were all competitive. And even though you know it was going to be painful because going over the, we didn't have a good big league club, our minor league system wasn't very good. And you knew it was going to be painful as far as him, but to make moves. And then you're trying to add talent, so you're really trading some of your better players at that time to try to acquire a young talent. It's going to be painful, but I remember the old adage when I was a young guy, people used to tell me, and Tommy Lasorda always used to say it, you're going to win 54, you're going to lose 54, and it's the other 54 in the middle that make the difference. Well, we blew that <laughs> adage away because we didn't win our 54. Right. So it was painful, um, but I think, uh, in fact, I'm, at the time, we talked about if we're going to try to rebuild the organization, we're going to do it to the best of our abilities. We're not going to shortcut it. And if we run out of time, then we run out of time. Fortunately, we didn't run out of time, and the club started to get better as time progressed. But that was a very painful season, not, not an enjoyable one at all. Fast forward a few years, you guys won the AL pennant in 2006. How satisfying was that so closely removed from 119 losses? Well, extremely. I mean, you just uh, it's hard to describe those feelings, especially – when you start with a club that our record was so bad, they hadn't won in a long time, and you come out of nowhere, really. And we had a good team that year, too. Uh, even though we got beat in the World Series, you could argue that we just as easily could have won it when you looked at the talent on the field. So that was a very rewarding year, very exciting for all of us. Um, all of a sudden, you look at the club around there, and you're just a whole different operation. It rejuvenated baseball in Detroit. Uh, we had players that wanted to play in Detroit with the Tigers again compared to when we first came there and said players would say give you every reason why they didn't want to play there. So it was rewarding, it was fun, it was a very enjoyable experience. You were obviously very familiar with Leland when you brought him into Detroit. How important is it in your role to have a solid relationship with your manager? I think extremely. I think it's probably the most important relationship on a baseball uh, operation because you need to be on the same page with your manager. If you, and you, that, when I say that, it doesn't mean you're not going to disagree on things because I disagree plenty of things with Jim Leland and as I do have done with every manager. Uh, and they don't agree with all my decisions. But there's a mutual respect and hard work towards what you're doing. And I think people need to see that you're on the same page with one another, the manager and the general managers like here and John Farrell is our manager. Well, I didn't know John Farrell before I came here. I mean, I knew him, but I didn't really know him. And we've been able to work while we're on the same page. So it's, I think that's an extremely important relationship. Having been in Montreal, Florida, and Detroit, what enticed you most about Boston? Well, Boston, it, a couple of things. One is great baseball city. And when you start talking about iconic franchises and you start talking about the Boston Red Sox are one of the most iconic sports franchises, not just baseball and professional sports. Uh, very appealing um, situation. Secondly, great relationship with John Henry, a 
before I came here, and I've been able to build upon that with our other owners, Tom Warner and Mike Gordon. But John Henry, uh, knowing the type of person he is and how dedicated he is to win, how he treats people, that was very important for me. And then the other part of it was, it's interesting because when you come to a market like Boston, when you've been, and people think of me, well, being a big market, big payroll like I was in Detroit. But the first 15 years of my being a general manager, I never was with the payroll except for one year that was in the top half. And that was the year in 1997. So in Montreal, we had a low payroll. In Florida, we had a low payroll. And here you're in a position you can do things from a payroll perspective with your club, but you can also do the other things in your organization. You don't have to shortchange everything because it's a big market club. You're able to produce revenues to support that. And so if it's analytics, if it's scouting, if it's international operations, if it's um, Latin America, player development, scouting, whatever it may be, you can make decisions that are always being made. And not that there's not fiscal responsibility, because there is. There's fiscal responsibility everywhere, but you have the ability to be fiscally responsible and still be aggressive in many different areas. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. People used to look at some teams and say they're a very analytic-heavy team, they're a very scouting-heavy team. Do you think league-wide most teams have now made the balance and, and figured out a way to incorporate all of it and, and utilize all of it? I think so. I think there's been more of a trend of that in recent years. And I agree with your assessment that there's been one or the other. And probably some clubs, they still look that way. Right. But really, I think most people combine because... There's a lot of smart people that are running baseball organizations. They're very intelligent individuals. And smart people, they're open-minded to different ideas. And if you block off certain ideas as far as and which can make you better, that's not a wise thing to do. So I think people try to combine both. Now, I think the one advantage some people may have is they may come from more of a scouting player development background so they have a better pulse of that. Others may come from an analytical background so they may have more of a pulse than that. But then you combine the two which ultimately is what works the best I think for organizations. Now that all 30 teams have caught up in terms of analytics, do you think teams are out there looking for the next big competitive advantage, whatever that may be? Oh sure. I mean we're all competitive like I said, you want to win. Um, and I think it, and the thing that's always interesting if you're doing that and you do have an edge, you're not going to tell other people about it. So somebody may have an edge out there at this point right now that none of us know about, uh, but you're not going to, to broadcast that. So you're going to try to find edges any way you possibly can in order to help you win. Because when you think about it, everybody talks about winning and losing, which, of course, what's the difference. But sometimes one win can make a difference if you make the postseason or not. That one win, that club, then can still win a world championship. So that's what you're doing. Anything you can to help you win any particular game to give you that edge. It seems like the next uh, thing that a lot of teams are looking at is player performance and optimal performance and their health and sleep studies, things like that. Do you think that's something that's catching on more industry-wide? I think so. Again, I think um, the medical profession extremely intelligent. 
so we're trying to incorporate that into our thinking with our players. Now the key with a lot of these things are not only incorporating the thought processes, but making sure it works for you in the game. So you have to be able to combine the knowledge of the game with the knowledge that they provide. So for example, I mean, health, we always talk about nutrition. We all, almost everybody in today's world knows what's better from you from a nutritional perspective. But if you are always serving the same things to your players, well, eventually, there's a group of those players that don't want to eat just that nutritional stuff, and they'll seek some stuff that's not quite as nutritional. So you combining all that knowledge and making things accessible to them uh, is extremely important. So, yeah, I do think that that's an area. In an age where so many teams are hesitant to trade top prospects, you dealt a package of players for Chris Sale this winter. How tough is it to deal away a player like Moncada and some of these prospects that you've dealt, and how do you balance that against bringing in a talent like Chris? Well, it is tough. I mean, people, you know, we, we did trade some good prospects and, and we've traded some here, but I think that what you're trying to do is win a world championship. And if you have the ability to win a world championship with your club, and you have to be able to analyze that yourself, doesn't mean you're going to win it, but you have a club that can do it. I think you do within reason what you can to try to win. But I think you also have to realize at times it's painful because the best trades there that work are clubs that, for example, in this case, the White Sox are looking towards the future. We're looking to try to win. Not that we're not giving up the future, and not that the White Sox don't win as many games as they possibly can this year. But those are the ones that where though you can balance those type of deals. And I mean, I think you have to be strong in this job too, because you're going to get criticized. That's just the way the game is, because most decisions aren't 100 percent to zero percent. A lot of the toughest ones are 51% to 49%. And so when you think about that, the 49%, if you make the 51% decision, are going to be critical of you. And what really is makes it happen is the one, if you win with your decisions, they will balance out. But you have to be able to take the criticism when somebody is later playing successfully that that's just part of what doing your job. Because if you don't do those things, eventually you probably won't win because you're in a spot where guys who are aggressive that will make moves, um, they usually end up being successful and can provide their organization what they need at a particular, particular time to get them over the hump to win. You traded for David Price in Detroit, traded him away, then signed him back in Boston. What do you like most about him on and off the field, and how much of a relief was it that his elbow situation this spring wasn't a bigger deal? Well, first of all, I love his ability um, for me and my job because I can like a lot of people personally, but that doesn't make a difference because you want him to win for you. But in addition that, I also, David Price is a tremendous human being. He is a wonderful person, what he brings to the club, um, on the field, off the field, and he's really what you look for from a person that provides leadership with your team. So the all-around ability, I think he would be able to have the makeup to deal with the Boston market, which can be a very aggressive um, market. And so when you look at him, he's really the, the, the total package. And the one thing which we were fortunate the other day, he looks like he's going to be healthy. You just had hope someone like him stays healthy. He has the type of delivery that he has as good a chance as anybody. He has the determination. He'll go out there and do what he can to get out on that mound. But um, he's really the total package as far as an individual, both on and off the field.
Mookie Betts had a breakout MVP type season last year. Does that put pressure on him to repeat that kind of season? Well, I think that people could look at that, but I think when players are as good as Mookie Betts, I don't think they're feeling much pressure in that regard. I think that Mookie Betts is kind of shines with the pressure, that he looks that when the eyes are, people are looking at him, that the spotlight is something that he thrives under. Now, some players aren't like that, but I think in Mookie's case that it, it won't face him whatsoever. He's a top athlete. He's a great performer. He'll probably have a slump at some time this year, but it's not going to by any means bust him, and he's in a situation where um, I think he'll go out. I can't say he'll put up the same numbers because the numbers were phenomenal, but he'll have a really good season and a, and a great career. Pablo Sandoval showed up in really good shape this spring. There's been a lot of talk about him. How much of a lift would it be for your lineup if he could revert to the form we saw from him in San Francisco? Well, it would be a real plus for us because uh, that's one spot that uh, last year was not our most successful spot in the lineup, third base. Pablo's been a successful major league player for many years, and I think he can come back and do that for us. We don't need him to carry us either. We just need him to be a real solid performer, go out there and be a good, solid, basically everyday player, uh, play solid defense, contribute from an offensive perspective. And really, when you look at most of Pablo's numbers throughout his career, he's not a 320-type hitter with 20, 25 home runs. If he can go out there and hit you, you're 275, 280 with dozen to 15 home runs and knocking his runs and play real solid third base for us, that would be a real pickup for a ball club. Aside from his obvious production, what do you think the Red Sox are going to miss most about David Ortiz? Well, just his overall presence. David Ortiz, um, what he brings to an organization and to a ball club um, is very unique, getting away from the ability because he's such a good player. But his overall presence, he, he is um, beyond in, in our community. He's, he's iconic, really. And so when he, when he walks around or walks out on the field, people look at him in a different perspective. And so you lose that presence. Now, we have a lot of good young players, and I think they'll play well. And I know they still talk to David because you know, people say, I hey, talk to David, talk to David. And he's very happy to help out however he can because he feels like he, he is part of this organization. And he will always be part of this organization. But you can't replace that presence. People just don't have that type of overall. When they walk into the clubhouse or they walk out onto the field or they walk onto an event where everybody's oohing and on, and it's David Ortiz. MLB, we've talked about the analytics before. MLB statcasts have made some of these metrics more available to the public mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. How much do you think that's changed the way fans look at the game? Well, I think there's a segment of the population that it's changed. Um, I, I think that a lot, and for them, the people that are statistically oriented, it's changed the way they look at the game, and they really thrive on that. That's really fun for them. Yet there's another segment of population that, let's say, they're veteran fans that um, maybe aren't interested in all that. Um, they don't really pay much attention to that. But I think there's a segment of the population that really thrive that, on those stats. They like it, and so for them, they enjoy that analysis and using that type of information to analyze players themselves. When you made the sale trade, you said, quote, in baseball, four years down the road is an eternity in many ways. You've dealt a bunch of prospects since you've been here, brought in proven veterans, Craig Kimball, Sale. Are you surprised when you see other teams declaring an 18 or 19-year-old kid as untouchable? Well, not really. I mean, I understand that. Um, because, and it depends where you are in an organization. I've been 
places where I've had 18 or 19 year old guys that are untouchable. Um, and it's a situation where um, I, I think it's very important to realize where you stand from an organizational perspective. And I still have had guys, although probably not as many as others, that I would really prefer not to trade. And I do think there's a right mix, and again, that's one of the advantages with the Red Sox organization. We've traded a lot of guys, but we still have some pretty good players in our farm system, and we're a very young major league club. I was just talking to somebody the other day, they're talking about our outfield, and I said, I said wow, you're outfield young. I said, well, yeah, 24, 26, 22, and they might be the best outfield in baseball with Best Bradley and Benintendi, and we're in a position where none of them are free agent at the earliest, four years down the road. So we do have the ability to grow back some of the farm system too. Ben Attendee was one guy you wouldn't trade this winter. What kind of upside do you see for him? I think he has a chance to be an all-star type player on a regular basis. Um, and he'll probably contribute more quickly than most young players. He's a very even keeled type of individual. He works very hard. And he just has such good ability. It's a short swing. I mean, he has that short stroke at the plate. So he has the ability to handle a lot of pitching. He's in a spot where he can uses the whole field. He's smart. He's good offensively and defensively, has good instincts. So I think he has a chance to be an all-star type player on a yearly basis. Last question. You knew you weren't going to get through this without hearing about the Yankees once. Uh, they're going through an interesting phase right now, rebuilding while trying to compete. What do you think of the, the job Ryan Cashman's done in the past year of trying to accomplish sort of both of those things, and do you look at them going into this season as a legitimate threat in the AL East? I sure do look at them as a legitimate threat, and I think Brian wants you to think that they're not a legitimate threat. <laughs> but he is a, le they are a legitimate like threat, and they want to sneak up on you, but they wouldn't make some of the moves unless that they did unless they felt they had a chance to win because they've added some people too. But I, Brian Cashman's a very good general manager, an outstanding general manager. He's done it for a long time. He's built world championship clubs. And I think they really did a nice job this wintertime in collecting some young players over the winter and then the, the trading deadline last year. And I think that they're in a spot that um, they have a good club right now. They're going to get better with some of the young players. I don't think anybody should take them for granted.